Anyway, this is not going to go into the podcast. <laughs> this is getting <laughs> straight cut out. Um, <laughs> Oof. Hi, we're back. Do you miss the podcast? Um, if you did, there's some good news for you because we have a few episodes coming up over the n- next month um, with a few more guests to wrap up the season before we move on to the, potentially the next one. But for today, we have a interview with Ariel Lim, who is an ex-NUS debater, who is also the coach of a few schools here in Singapore and a very renowned judge in the local circuit. This episode was actually recorded all the way back in March, but due to a lot of different circumstances, um, including if some of you might have heard my kids' recent campaigns in JGs and RDAs, I've had literally no time to edit the podcast until now, and that's why it's being released so late. So apologies to Ariel, apologies to all of you, but hopefully we'll be back on track um, in the coming month. For now though, enjoy. Okay, so um, Ariel, what is your debate license? Uh-huh. So I started debating when I was P5 in 2007. So f- 14 years ago. And the reason that I started was that one day when I was P5, my primary school English teacher wrote my name on the board along with some other people and told us all to stay behind so that we could join the debate club. And that was the start of it. Was there any particular reason why your um, teacher like, singled you out to join a debate club? Was it, like, you know, something that happened in class or something along those lines? Mm, I don't think there was any specific incident that led to it. I imagine it was probably based on things like um, English performance and also um, just generally how we did in class discussions. So there were, like, debates in class in primary school at that time? Yeah, there were. <laughs> what were the topics <laughs> in, like, primary school? As in, in class or the In class, in class. In... Like, before you even... Oh, okay. The one I can remember is, um, I think at one point we had a debate in social studies, which I think was about the merger and separation. Um, I... Yeah, I think it was about the referendum or something like that. Oh my gosh, like, I can imagine, like, people, like, who are much, much older will be completely unable to talk about merger and separation. <laughs> like, how, how do they expect primary school kids to be able to, to debate that topic? Yeah, although I guess to be fair, it was a prep round, so we had time to research. <laughs> did, they, did they also do it like a, like a 3v3 or was it some different format? Mm, I... I think it was a 3v3. I think that was actually before I started debating, so I don't remember the right, exact right. format. Yeah, but I think it was right, 3v3. That makes sense. What, what was primary school debating like then? And I mean, like, competitively. Okay, so this, I think, was quite a different time. Um, PSDO and Wits and Words did not exist yet. Um, back then, we only had the RI and the, the Huachong Invitationals. Um, we had four-minute speeches, and actually, when I look back, it was quite intense. Like, to prepare for this podcast, you know, I actually went back into my email to look at the very oldest emails um, regarding oh the that, that, that I had. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, to refresh my memory, and like, so I found some old motions, right? Um, right. This house believes that religion has no place in the classroom. What? Uh, this in primary school? Right. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. This house would support co-education in school. Okay, I, I guess that's the the classic single-sex schools one. Um, this house would include sex education in the primary school curriculum. Uh, this house believes that singing the national anthem and saying the pledge every morning is pointless. 
<laughs> yeah, so like no, I, no, no wonder why the MOE <laughs> took over right, after like I don't know what like primary school debating is like today. Like, do are, are the motions today still? Oh, they are, they are way like more those? sanitized. My kids are debating this house will ban pets. Um, ban what? Pets, pets like oh pets. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this house believes that home based learning is more effective than classroom learning. So just Ooh. sanitized motions. But I mean, I. I, I I don't even remember because I did primary school debating as well. I don't re- even remember a Hua Chong invites. That must have been ages ago. I do remember RI invites though. Like um, the motions back when I was doing RI invites were already more sanitized already. I think there must have been complaints from from some teachers because we were we were doing things like this house believes that McDonald's does more harm than good. This house will make literature compulsory in schools, stuff like that, right? Ooh. Which is a lot more cookie cutter. I think, I think um. Somebody must have uh, filed some complaints <laughs> upstairs. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was there was a sprinkling of those motions like that as well. Like um, I think one of the impromptu round motions that I remember was um, this house would report your friend to the discipline master or something like that. So that's like much more of what you would imagine in like a primary school tournament. But like most of the motions were actually surprisingly intense looking back. And like I remember the 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 training was quite intense as well. Like one thing I remember was there was once before a tournament I got an SMS from the teacher in charge at 10 p.m. about whether I could incorporate a sub into my speech. Because um third prop I guess could technically do that. Um because wow. the the second speaker was having problems keeping within the time. And like, I, I feel like today that wouldn't happen either. Like, a primary school kid getting a oh, message yeah, at 10pm no, about like, something like that. Past 8pm, you know, it's, it's out of bounds already. I think t- times have really changed. Um, yeah. But can I ask, right, like, yeah. when you did primary school debating, um, do you have a coach? Or was it like, just teacher-led? Oh, yeah, yeah. So our coaches back then were um, Ren Xie and Moses. So it was like the RI like pro bono program la, that that yeah right right because yeah. I also had I also had I think so. um I also had my first coaches from that program um Ooh. uh I had Adil and this nice. guy called Matthias Matthias Chia I, I'm not sure if you you know him but yeah so so I think that that I'm not sure whether the RI still does that program I I'm I don't see any like many like primary school coaches that come from like pro bono anymore which is a pity la. I think that's something that was really enjoyable for me um, as a student, like receiving yeah. that program, but also like as somebody who was like eventually becoming a coach of a primary school. Like I do feel like it was quite valuable and hopefully, you know, um, like somebody revives this program. How did y'all do? Like did, did y'all do well in the tournaments? Yeah, so we got into the finals um, twice, I think. I think uh, we were beaten by Rosyth and by Taunan. Yeah. Oh, Taolan uh, would have been in 2007, right? That was the year that yeah. Taolan won. Yeah, I remember because I was in the 2008 batch of Taolan Knights and uh, we, oh, were under, we were under enormous pressure because our seniors had like ooh. just like won the previous year and it was like, okay, you have to like, you have to win also. But we didn't lah. We lost ooh. to Cat High in the semis. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> yeah, but, and also Rosyth, you know, Rosyth is always Rosyth. Rosyth is always there. <laughs> yeah, I I remember you said once they start training in like P three or something. Is it? I mean, that's what I I heard. Like nowadays, this is something that, that is that is quite common already. That you start training wow. from P three. Although I don't know what you're really teaching there at P three. <laughs> I have to go I find can't out. Imagine. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> 
Um, so we moved from from primary school to secondary school. Um, if I'm not wrong, you went to RGS, RGS debate. Yeah. How were those years like for you? Mm, yeah. So those I think were were good years for me as well. Um, in terms of debating, um, something that happened was that because when I was in RGS debate was still a merit CCA, um, so it had to be a second CCA. Um, you had to have a first um a core CCA as your first CCA at least at first. So in SEC 1 and 2, I was also in choir. And so um, in SEC 1, it was um, sometimes a bit hard to make it to training. But right. um, after two years, um, I I left choir and then debate was my only CCA. So to, to explain to the listeners what a core CCA and merit CCA is, because it's a very RI term, um, a core CCA basically was a CCA that was uh, like, like a performing arts or like a like a sport or uniform group that everyone had to do as their first CCA. And generally speaking, the clubs and societies were like second CCAs um, back then. And so you had to take it up on top of something else. Um, you talk about the choir, right? A lot of a lot of the prominent debaters, actually, uh, because of the, the, the RI system that had married CCAs, started out <laughs> with choir as well. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. I, Ernest Goh, um, WSCC oh. 2015, was in the choir. Gerald Nee, <laughs> was in the choir as well. Because, just because of this this quirk of um having to do like multiple CCAs uh and not really having this this uh core status thing until much later on. So um that was like a, a kind of unusual quirk. Oh yeah which is why when I was still in both debate and choir I was staying back literally every day. Right, like five right. days oh a my week. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like how do we even have time? How did we even have time to study? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I don't know. Yeah, and, and yeah, and like it was only after I had graduated from IGS that they converted debate into a course CC. I think. Right, right. I think nowadays yeah, you can so. you can do like these clubs and societies as a first CC already. Things have really changed, la. Um, yeah. But how how were your experiences in RGS like then? Like uh, competing for, for the school and presumably competing also then later on in, in RI? Mm. Yeah, I think my experiences were pretty good. Um, I think it was a time period during which I learned quite a lot. Um, transitioning from the skills that I had in terms of primary school debating earlier into, I guess, a more polished and formal style of debating, um, learning more about things like structure um, and so on. Um, I was in the AG's team in 2011 and 2012 um, when I was SEC 3 and SEC 4, and that was pretty good as well. Was was RGS a very competitive environment? I mean, I remember like you had really, really good speakers there, people like Yen Jin. Mm, yeah. Was, was it like quite a like stressful place to be or was it actually quite a fun atmosphere? I would say for me it was mostly a fun atmosphere um, but I think that is because in general I tend to be a pretty easygoing person in general. Um, I, I guess it was competitive in the sense that it was intense, um, training was intense. Um, we again stayed in school until 10pm. Um, right. It was... <laughs> Yeah, and in the middle but of nowhere, I, I, right? In the middle of Orchard. Right, like, yeah. <laughs> back then, there was no like downtown yeah. line or whatever. <laughs> yeah, terrible, in, yeah, in in the old campus, yeah. And right. um, but I think it wasn't competitive in the sense that it was cutthroat or that um people tried to outdo each other in an unhealthy way. I think personally, I 
they didn't really experience that. Um, some people might disagree with me, but my personal experience is that um, I think for me it was generally a, a fun environment, and um, I really enjoyed um the time with my teammates and mm. um learning in general. Was there any moment uh from SSSDC that stood out to you? Ah, uh, okay. So in twenty twelve, <laughs> when we were sec four, um, and we lost in the quarterfinals to. NYGH, um, on the motion about banning smoking in public. Ah, and Always yeah, appears and in the quarterfinals I, every like six right, years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, I think the reason that we lost was that for some reason, I think we, basically the mistake that we made was that we didn't run the addiction argument for some reason. That's what right. I, I remember. Like, um, we were... Or against spending it, I think for some reason we didn't run the addiction argument, and then we lost and we were out, and that was very sad. But it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> eight years ago. <laughs> um. So from RGS to RI, uh, two years in in the RJC campus, there was one year where, uh, our debate journeys overlapped for the first time. Um, yeah. <laughs> you. Probably remember me as one of your juniors. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. how prominent I was, but I was there. Um, do you remember uh, Prometheus Cup 2013? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I can't. I, I remind me again. What What was your What was your role in in uh, Prom Cup? I was working on Quiz Night, right? right? Yeah, I was working with Quiz Night, and also I think I was one of the liaison officers for with one of the teams. Right, I Do think you remember so. which one? <laughs> um, oh, that'd be too much of a ask. <laughs> I am I st- not I still have nightmares sure, about so... Prometheus Cup, so... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I think it was a Canadian team, but I'm, I, I'm not completely sure, but I think it was a Canadian team. Right, yeah, right, right. I think so. I, so my, my main memory of you... <laughs> I'm not sure whether this is... Uh, memory of you in JC was when you came in one session and you did like a lecture about Germany. Oh, Do yeah, yeah. Do you remember I did, that? Yeah, yeah, I did that, yeah. I made slides. Right, <laughs> right, right. And I was just so in awe because I was like, I didn't even know who ran Germany. I I, I had no clue about anything going on in Germany and now I'm, I'm being flooded with all this like specialised German knowledge that I knew that <laughs> I would never forget. Um, do you do you remember why you, you ended up doing that lecture? Like, because it, it, it really was a complete surprise to, to me. Like, we didn't expect that this was something that was going to happen. Like, what was the backstory behind that? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> basically at that time I had been reading about German politics. Uh, so I figured it would be good or possibly useful to do a lecture right. about German politics. Yeah, so that's why I did that lecture. Was it like <laughs> something that you that, that like you were encouraged to do by your co- by the coaches back then, like Takeway and Josh Hugh? Yeah, I, I actually don't remember if I initiated it or like if there was just um a general request for people to right. do lectures and right. and I volunteered for it. Yeah, I actually can't remember wh- how or why exactly um I did the lecture. But what I do remember yeah. on my end it was that it was super useful because we were going to the Czech Republic Ooh. like a couple of months after that to Heart of Europe. And obviously like you need to have some specialized knowledge about what was going on in Europe. There was a motion about like oh. um whether whether uh Germany should 
something to do with Israel and Germany. Um, oh, and the history nice. behind that. Uh, it, as a prepared round in the heart of Europe. And I remember like a lot of the things that you said coming in handy in, in, in that round. So in many ways, you contributed to my first uh, international placement. <laughs> oh, wow, that's nice. <laughs> Yay, thanks so much. I'm glad it was useful. All right, let's move on to um, university then because uh, you've done a lot of amazing work um, with NUS and you've uh, competed quite successfully for NUS as well. The first thing that I'm really interested in is, you know, after what was at that point eight straight years of debating, uh, was that not a part of you that was like, you know what, it's time to take a break? Um, what, like, what possessed you to continue debating, you know, uh, <laughs> past, you know, eight years, going well into a decade? No, I mean, I guess this is a question that I get quite a bit. Like, why do you keep debating? (laughs) (laughs) You and me both, you and me both. I I get the same question. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I can say there wasn't any point at which I considered not debating. Because um, it, at that point, was just the thing that I did, you know? Like, it was just my hobby. And, like, I had gotten very attached to it. Like, I had spent eight years at that point doing it like um I spent a huge amount of time doing it it was basically the main thing that that I was interested in so there wasn't a question for me as to whether I should quit debating it was just kind of automatic that is is there something about debates that makes it so addictive I think the first thing I would say is I, I think just the sheer excitement of debating I think the feeling of flow and concentration when you're giving a speech I think the the thrill when you're in a round and you're kind of just in a different zone. Um, and, and I think also the, the liberating feeling, um, of being able to go up there and give a speech. And then, um, after the round is over, you cross the floor and shake hands and like, you have just spent an hour kind of, um, yelling at your friends basically, but it's something that you bond over, you know? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, like it, it's kind of, it sounds strange when, I put it that way, but like it's very liberating, I think, to be able to get into that zone where I think we can just have kind of um an, an intense spa or like an, an intense um um exchange of arguments and rebuttals and so on. But at the end of the day it's not um something that people hold against each other, but the contrary actually it is something that people bond over as like a common passion. And and I think that's something that I really like. And I think the next thing I would say is also the community in, right. in debating. Like, just the fact that I think we all do this hobby. We recognize the same inside jokes. We know the same lingo. We all spend our weekends at different tournaments. And, like, it's just something that... Every um, single weekend. That, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Especially now with online debating. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's just something that I find really addictive. So, you know, eight years of debating, uh, one would expect that there's less marginal returns as time goes on. <laughs> um, but but I gather that you actually learned a lot or gained a lot during your time in NUS debate. Uh, perhaps you can tell mm. us a little bit about that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think there were two main things um that or rather two big changes um in my debating career when I started in NUS. Uh the first thing was that I became f- familiar with BP, uh where previously I had had very little exposure to BP and so when I first came into NUS I was a bit 
overwhelmed with how BP works and like how to do BP. But now, now actually I prefer BP to TV3. Um, at right. least where speaking is concerned. Yeah. Um, right. and then the second thing was that after doing third for eight years, uh, I switched to doing first instead. Um, on the advice of seniors. And that was, um, a really good decision. Uh, I think that really, uh, played a big role in, I think, the rest of my debating career in that, um, I think switching to first helped me to develop a lot of new skills and, um, unlock new capabilities that I hadn't previously been using that much. I cannot even remember seeing you debate in third like it really I, I, it must have been i mean maybe maybe <gasps> like jg's but like i wouldn't have any impression of 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 that lah but i i only know you as a first speaker and it's it's really jarring to think about you know even the thought of, of, of you doing third speaker is is it's almost unusual to me just by how right, many yeah. first speaker speeches you've been doing in the last few years um and, right, and yeah. how much you specialize in that yeah yeah, but the the weird thing is that I I did third for eight years. So actually, I've been doing third. I, I did third for longer than I've been doing first. Right, yeah. that's that, that yeah, is that's... so crazy to me. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, it's so what strange, was some of yeah. your best memories in NUS debate? I would say one that comes to mind right now is um ABP twenty nineteen. Uh, when I was with Peti and we made it to the quarterfinals, and, um, but what happened there was that we actually weren't sure whether we would break at all at that point, because, um, we had taken fourths, and as the, the list of breaking teams was being read out, um, our team name kept not being there. Eventually, um, we broke 23rd, I think, right. yeah, right at the bottom, and that, I think, was, a really good memory because um it was just that sense of relief and um right. satisfaction that we had broken after all and um Honor was there with us as well he was cheering with us and everything right. so it was just a really good experience do you miss um you know the physicality of of going to 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 debate tournaments hmm, to some extent i think i miss being able to socialize with people at tournaments. I think, um, tournaments for a lot of debaters, I think used to be kind of the nexus of our right, social life right. in that, yeah, right. And, and that's the main place that we see our friends. Uh, after that, you know, we, we go out for meals and stuff. We hang out in the convening hall. Um, we, um, we just talk to each other there. We, we walk into the convening hall and, and, and we're like, Oh, hey, you're here again in that kind of thing. And like now we can't do that anymore. So I think, um, I, I do miss that social element. And I guess also the feeling of giving a speech in front of a room is a bit different from do- doing it in front of your computer. Um, but I do think online debating has had a lot of advantages as well that I think I will also miss when we eventually go back to physical debating. Like what? Yeah. So I think the main thing I can think of is that online debating is incredibly global. Like, the number, the sheer number of tournaments that you can go for now is just, has just increased massively because now every tournament around the world is accessible to you as long as you don't mind debating in different time zones. Mm. Um, which, you know, I don't mind, so. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, for those of you yeah, who don't know, Ariel, like, doesn't sleep. <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think, she, I don't think you understand what sleep is. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do sometimes sleep, but like, 
at strange times of the day. <laughs> yeah, so so you can debate in so many different tournaments and like you can check out different circuits whose style you're not familiar with. Um you can meet new debaters you you never have met. You can debate you can form teams with people you have never met in real life. And like that's just super exciting. Like it's like kind of a part of the world's experience, except without having to pay seven hundred dollars. Right, and, right. Yeah, and, and and like you can do it almost every weekend. In fact, you can do it every weekend, and like it, it's just the coolest thing. Like that, right. you can just right. check out so many different circuits around the world. It's it's really cool. And, right, and the there's a global advantage. online yeah. spe- spreadsheet now, right? There's a global spreadsheet. Yeah. Where you can see, like every week, what are the tournaments going on, and you know they have the time zones and everything, so you can plan your your weekends accordingly if you want to debate at every single tournament. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 it's super useful. And I, I think also, I think, also that's one of the things that I find most heartwarming in that I find it really heartwarming how the way that the debate community has responded to the pandemic is to just create this massive explosion of online tournaments to enable people to continue with their hobby. And in some ways, it, it's supercharged debating past what it originally was. So I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, I think the next advantage of online debating is methods of prep. So, like, um, I, I think it's been mentioned on here that I have three Google Docs that I use. Yeah, so, um, and I think this is something that has massive advantages over pen and paper prep to the point that I feel like I might have a problem when I have to transition back to pen and paper prep. So like Oh my gosh, the I feel the three... same way. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, yeah, so so like my three Google Docs are I have one for prep, one for tracking, and one for my own speech. Um slash for speeches right. if my partner wants to use it too. Right. But like that's up to them. Yeah, and like I have I have three uh, Google Docs per round. So for each tournament I just make a shared folder with my teammate and then right. in each wow. shared folder I have subfolders for each round. And like oh it's super cool. Gosh. So right, yeah, and like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not normally a very organized person, but like, <laughs> right. I mean, my Google Docs are literally just one document, like not even, not even like multiple documents in like a random space. It's literally all the rounds are all in a single word document. Ooh. You like one document is like 120 pages because it's just like so many rounds. Yeah, I find that yeah. my 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 track sheets when I'm judging look like that, but when I'm debating, I, I have a separate subfolder. F- right for each round. Yeah, and like, it's so much more efficient than pen and paper prep. Like, firstly, because I can type so much faster than I can write. So, so like, the amount of of content that I can get down is just a lot more. Um, Secondly, also, because you can synchronize the content with your partner in real time. So, like, it's just faster than trying to whisper quietly or, like, trying to pass a note. You can just type in real time and you can see everything. And, like, it's just, it's super efficient. Like, I, I, I feel like it will be, it will be difficult to transition back pen and paper right. at this point because Google is just so much more efficient. Right, like, I, I have a lot of problems with penmanship, right? My handwriting is absolutely atrocious. So, <laughs> like... Oh, no. Like, one of the things that I always struggle with is if I have to write a lot of things, my, my multitasking isn't brilliant either. What this therefore means is that I end up, like, not really being able to focus on the debate um, when I'm writing Ooh. things down. But now it's like, you know, you can type out a sentence in like five seconds and you can then spend the next 20 seconds just listening and processing it before you <laughs> turn out your next sentence and right, I, yeah. I completely agree with you I have no idea how I'm going to go back to 
to um like pen and paper debating. In fact, like if right. if the day comes where we get to have a physical tournament again, like I would actively campaign for us to be able to use laptops <laughs> when we're debating. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Like the the handwriting issue is one that I have as well. Like I think one of the most common things that I heard from my teammates uh, when we had real life tournaments was I, I can't read your handwriting. So <laughs> I think yeah, n- now I, this problem does not exist anymore, which is good. I'm just wondering whether we can find a way to have that, but also still have the physical you know interactions that that sort of make tournaments fun for me. Mm. Um, but you know we we'll, we have to see how how the the next few months takes us. I suppose with the vaccine and everything. Yeah, I I I I think some societies around the world have run hybrid tournaments. I'm not too sure of the details of how they work, but I guess it's possible. So maybe that could be an option in terms of both having a physical tournament, but also allowing international tournaments to uh, um international participants to call in. That would be really really yeah. interesting. And if that, if that's the future of debating, I I think I'm all in. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Um. Any other parts uh that you of your debate experience you want to explore? I think uh one thing that I can talk about is my experience debating with the stutter. Um, because I think that's one reason why I think a lot of people who don't know me through debating are surprised that I'm a debater because it seems counterintuitive <laughs> that someone who has right. a speech impediment um chose to become a debater. Um, but I think um one thing I would say is that debating I think has actually been one of the biggest things that has helped me in terms of coping with my speech impediment. Like I wouldn't say that it has made it better because I mean I still have it, but I think how it has helped me is that it has just helped me to not care um, or, mm. or, or at least to not um, experience a loss of confidence or um, difficulties um, that daring to speak up and things like that because of my stammer. Um, I think um, so one time when um, I actually went to speech therapy for it and some of the questions on the questionnaire um, about how your stammer affects your life were things like um, do you avoid ordering food um, in restaurants? Uh, do you avoid talking on the phone? Uh, do you try to avoid um, conversations? Do you avoid public speaking? I, I think that the main reason that I do not do those things is that I have been fortunate enough to already have spent such a long time debating um, to the point that I have become just used to the idea that um, that I just have a stutter and like that's the way it is, but it's not something that has to stop me from being able to speak. And I think that's something that has been very valuable for me in hindsight. Um, And I I think if not for debating, I think I would probably cope a lot worse with it in everyday life. Can you pinpoint anything specific about about debating that has allowed you to cope with the subtle better? Like, is is there something specific to the activity itself that, that has allowed for that confidence building? I suppose it's the immersion element in that when I'm in an activity where I have no choice but to stand in front of people and give seven minute speeches every weekend I mean I do have a choice but like I I choose to do that and then that's the the nature of the activity Um, then every other form of speaking that I have to do in everyday life just kind of pales in comparison to that because um, yeah because Debating and public speaking is kind of, I suppose, one of the biggest challenges that 
um, probably occur when you have a speech impediment. And the fact that I think from the start I was already debating, um, I have been debating for so many years already and I'm used to um, the activity of debating and of speaking. I, I think that just means that um, the question of whether I should avoid speaking in other contexts or whether I should be worried about stammering and so on isn't really something that occurs to me because I've just become used to coming to terms with it and just accepting it as part of what I'm like. Alright, so um, we're moving on to the content segment of this podcast. Um, Ariel, I know I understand you want to talk a little bit about um, setup and how to set up a debate uh, in a way that allows you the uh, strongest advantage right from the very beginning. So perhaps you can just get us started on that. Yeah, so um, something that I think is very important is strategic problem setup. Um, this is something that might not be possible in every single motion, but when it is possible, it's very effective. So I think a common mistake that teams make is to set up debates in a way that is quite generic. So either they focus on impacting problems that are non-contentious. So they, they talk about um, why certain obvious harms are obviously bad and then they spend too long just f- focusing on um, um, impacts that are non-contentious. Or right. they do explain how their solution solves their problem, but they don't take the opportunity to show, to show why their solution actually exclusively does so. And like the problem with right. this is that it devolves into um, a messy debate where it's very easy for Op to just pick holes in their solution or to try to um, come up with alternative solutions and, and so on. And then it becomes difficult for you as Prop um, to explain why your solution is exclusive. Like sometimes people tag on um, separate exclusive benefits, um, but they do so in a way that is separate from their main key. So it's not clear why those benefits are important. So mm. I think one thing that really helps in strategic problem setup is to set the problem up in such a way that the problem and the solution go together like two pieces of a puzzle. So you paint the picture of a gap that only your solution can fill. So um, I think one classic example that I normally use to illustrate this is um let's say the motion is this house would implement a quota for women in parliament right so right. um a, a, yeah so um a generic problem set up would be something like sexism is harmful um sexism harms women in various ways and quotas reduce it and like this is not wrong but like it's, it's it's not as strategic as it could be but a better and more strategic way to set this up would be women are underrepresented in parliament for structural reasons that are unfixable without a quota so um structural problems um within the democratic process things like for instance parties being biased uh, in terms of how they choose their candidates um voters being biased in terms of how they evaluate candidates who are running for office um even society being biased in a way that makes it harder for women to get the qualifications that it takes to run for office in the first place and because all of these are structural um problems within the the the, the democratic process, um, the only way to fix it is with a quota. And then here are all the problems that are specifically the result of women being underrepresented. So um, not just harms that are caused by sexism in general, but harms that are specifically the result of the lack of women in parliament. So things like, for instance, um, a lack of role models, um, a lack of representation of, of women's issues in parliament, um, the vicious cycle that comes from the lack of role models, um, because, um, when the norm is that there are, there 
are very few women in politics, it is less likely that um, that young girls, for example, become inspired to go into politics and then that just creates a vicious cycle. And those harms are the direct result of the lack of women in parliament specifically. And right. because the, the, the lack of women in parliament is the result of structural problems that cannot be fixed internally but that have to, to be fixed through some form of, of external regulation, therefore right. a quota is the only way. So like right. that sets it up in such a way that... um. The, the gap that exists in status quo can only be fixed by your solution. Like, um, another example is, I guess, the, um, SSSDC motion about putting a tax on sugary drinks. Um, the generic setup there would be sugary drinks are unhealthy, they cause right, XYZ right. health problems, and therefore they are bad, and, and, and so we should tax them. But, um, this opens the door for a lot of op arguments, um, about alternative ways like education, about freedom of choice, and so on and so forth. So it's a lot, and of course you you can respond to these things, but it's a lot better if from the start you set up the problem as people drink too many sugary drinks, which are unhealthy, because of factors that can only be fixed by an external tax. So for example, right. um, there's a lack of awareness that cannot be fixed through education because um, even if people are aware of the harms of sugar, people don't normally read the labels of everything that they drink, and so um, mm. they cannot. Yeah, so they cannot implement the awareness that they are learning um, from these campaigns. Also, um, factors like sugar addiction, um, the addictive nature of sugar. Um, also, I guess the profit motive of companies that causes them to actively market these sugar drinks and so on. And, and because mm. all of these are, are internal problems, so these are problems that are inherent um, either to human um, psychology or to the way the market works and, and so on. So this cannot be changed in any other way except by some kind of external regulation that seeks to change um, consumers' behaviour. So because you have such that from the start, um, it is about how... Um, um, or rather, the, the problem comes from the lack of, of external intervention, and the problem can only be solved by external intervention. Therefore, you specifically need this policy. So, one thing that I've noticed is that um, a lot of debaters, especially at the secondary school level, they sort of understand the need to be specific, but they have a lot of trouble sort of getting to a specific argument. So, for instance, you talked about... Um, implementing a quota for women in parliament, right? And you said that mm. the problem is that women are underrepresented in parliament for structural reasons. Um, mm. Usually, like, the, the the brighter kids, they'll be able to get there straight away. They'll be like, okay, we need a specific, um, we need to be specific to the motion. The motion is about um, underrepresentation in parliament. And they'll sort of mm. get there. But then their justifications are always sort of very generic because they can't think of anything else. So they'll be like, women are underrepresented in parliament because of sexism. And so that, that, mm. that, that doesn't really help because it just goes back to the the <laughs> generic like you know argument that 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 you were going to reach anyway, and the specificity therefore doesn't really play a role in uh, coming up with a good argument. Like, do you have any mm. advice for 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 these kids? Like, how do we get to like specific structural reasons that actually uh, do help you narrow the debate to the to the scope that you want it to be? Think about why your solution is the only way you can solve these reasons. So, if you just say it's sexism, the next step, uh, the next question is then why can't sexism be solved in any other way? Uh, why can't we have education campaigns, whatever, um, instead of having a quota that forces parties to feel a, 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 a certain number of women in, in parliament? So then, when you have the chance to construct 
a problem around your solution, basically. You should try to construct the problem in such a way that your solution is the, um, is the, is, is the only way to solve the problem. So, um, think of specific mechanisms of sexism that cannot be addressed except through external intervention. Or, um, think of specific reasons why sexism cannot be changed in any other way except through external intervention, and then explicitly point out that these structural reasons make it so that only external intervention, like a quota, can actually address this issue. Yeah, that's why I would say it's important. Do you think that the problem setup is something that is separate from an argument, or is it like part of an argument? So I've seen like debaters who set up a problem in setup, like in the set- case setup portion, and then have a separate argument later on. I've also seen debaters who like, basically use the argument to do all the necessary setup. Uh, which one do you think is more effective? Mm, I would say this depends on how you choose to structure your speech. I think it depends, it differs quite a lot from, from motion to motion. Um, there are some motions where you would want this setup to kind of underlie your entire case and then you should probably mm. put it in the setup. There are other motions where you want to have separate arguments apart from this one problem that right. you're trying to address and then you could make it into one argument. But I think right. both methods work. It just depends on how well they fit into um, your overall case and w- whether your structure is clear overall. I guess another thing that people are often missing from the setup is, I think, um, obvious clarification. So if there are caveats that you want to draw, um, mm. you should do it early on and not wait for opt to attack you on those caveats um, and then put them in later. I think those are the main things that people are often missing from the setup. Mm, Yeah. I think uh, one more thing I could say about strategic home setup is is also that um, you can actually do it in quite a creative way. Like, um, I think one of the motions that I normally like to use to illustrate this is um, this house will encourage women to be selfish from UDC. Um, And normally when I use this as an example, um, people are confused by this because it's one of those um, very debate land things um, that sounds strange outside of debate land. But um, the problem setup that matches um, the motion is... Um, it's just that the problem with status quo is that women are socialized to be the opposite of selfish, i.e. to be too selfless to the point that um, they are unable to, to do things like set boundaries, um, stand up for themselves, right. advocate for their own needs and so on. And that causes all kinds of problems in terms of um, not being able to have healthy personal relationships, being vulnerable to abuse, um, being overlooked for promotions in the workplace and so on. And this is the direct result of the specific socialization to to, uh, to be overly selfless and to not be assertive. So so in this case, um, the reason, the way to envision the problem setup is if you see a motion where the the um, claim seems to be a bit unusual, like why would you encourage women to do something that seems on the surface to be intuitively a bad thing? Uh, perhaps it's because there is a, an overcorrection uh, in the status quo to, in the opposite direction, and so you're just sort of moving it back to a to a balance. Like there are techniques to think about how to create a problem when you see a motion that may on the surface seem like it is. Uh, telling you to do something that is unintuitive, right? Mm, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think one more example of this kind of situation would be I think this was at YNC Easter's. Um, but it's quite it's a very old motion. Um, this house would legalize duels to the death. Um, and it seems difficult to set up a problem around this because what kind of problem could possibly require that we should duel to the death, right? But like right. the problem, yeah. Yeah, but the problem that we set up was that um there's a specific gap in the legal system requiring um regarding how people settle personal disputes in that often personal disputes are not ones where there um where there are very clear aspects of the law that regulate exactly how these disputes should be solved. Um and often personal disputes are often ones that people want to resolve themselves and so they don't feel satisfied with the justice system or they don't feel willing to entrust resolving these uh, these disputes into the hands of the justice system and therefore the only way to resolve this problem um, which leads to all kinds of harms like um, uncontrolled violence, um, escalation and so on is to give people right. a legal and controlled way to settle it themselves and, and that solves the problem of the gap in the status quo mm. which is that we expect people to rely on the legal system um, on on a third party basically to resolve their personal disputes. So yeah, I I I think that's something. I think that's another example of um, what you said um how to right. set up a problem around something that sounds unintuitive. Sounds, right. But yeah, but I think when you do it creatively, you can make the frame quite convincing. Ariel, I I see that you have uh, done what uh, everybody else ha- has done <laughs> and. Uh, uh, created four sets of people instead of four people. Feel free to start with your first first set of uh, people. Mm. Yeah, so um, I am being derivative and I have also squirreled the motion, but okay. So... <laughs> okay, so the first group of people would be teachers. So um, all of the teachers in charge I have had throughout uh, my years of debating, um, the first teacher who selected me for the debate team in the first place and who started my 14-year journey right. in debating. <laughs> um, does, does she yeah. know that she has uh, uh, pushed you onto this 14-year path? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if she knows. <laughs> I'm not sure if she knows. Right. Yeah, my teacher's in charge um, in primary school um, who put huge amounts of effort into supporting us, um, looking through our speeches, um, sending us so many emails and so on. Um, uh, I think, uh, without these people, I think, uh, it would have been a lot harder for me to get started, um, and to continue in debating. So I think, um, I've been very fortunate to have, um, these supportive teachers who put me on the path of debating early on and who helped to guide me on the way. A lot of the uh, attention is is placed on coaches uh, it, when it comes to a, a team's performance and how, how well a team does. But really, mm. I think coaches flourish best when um, they have the trust of the teacher in charge and the teacher in charge is also themselves committed to the debate program and nurturing the students. Um, I've seen, you know, um, some really excellent uh, teachers in charge uh, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where my teachers in charge for the schools that I'm currently coaching uh, do offer that support. And, and I've also seen teachers, you know, when I was in school um, uh, that, that I still remember just because of uh, how much they were able to, to, to guide me through, you know, tough moments, losses. Sometimes, you know, 
uh, coaches can be not the most understanding people when you uh, really screw up a debate speech and uh, and mm. lose a round. Uh, but the teachers are perhaps sometimes a bit more there to uh, to uh, nurture you, uh, you know, and uh, and and really uh, uh, help you uh, overcome those difficult moments. And and that's something that I'm I'm truly grateful for as well. Alright, so um, second group then. Yeah, so the second group would be coaches. So all the coaches I have had, um, right. I want to say this is um um this uh, as as well as this segment in general is a non-exhaustive list uh, because right. obviously that there, there have been lots of people, um, who who have helped me in my debating right. career. Yeah, but I think I've been very fortunate to have um excellent and also very supportive coaches who have helped me a lot. Um, in developing as a debater, both in terms of skills, um, as well as I think just, um, overall development. Um, one thing I remember specifically was that, um, in SEC 2, um, there was something, um, that, that, um, that Marvin told me about improving the structure of my speech. Um, back then I was still doing third. I had a, a tendency to just give a list of rebuttals, um, without structuring or organizing them clearly. And he told me to improve my structure and how to do so. And um, after that, I started paying a lot more attention to structure. And I think today's structure is one of the main things that I pay attention to. So I think that has had very long-lasting effects on my debating career. Uh, there have been lots of other coaches as well. All of them just put a huge amount of effort into things like um, um, supporting us, um giving us feedback, editing our speeches, um, helping us to get through tournaments and so on and so forth, which, um, again, I think without these people, I would have had a lot um, of a harder time developing as a debater. Yeah, and I, I think the, the advantage of having multiple coaches is also, I guess, that they can work together um, right. at the so same time. So you had multiple coaches at the same time? Yeah, um, at some points... For instance, um, when one coach was going to not be able to make it for a while, uh, there would be a co-coach who, who, who would step in. Um, sometimes they, they would alternate the training sessions, things like that. Right, right, I see. And uh, I guess uh, moving into NUS, you sort of didn't have uh, a coach already. Like, uh, am I right? Like, was there a coach in NUS? No, right? There was. No, there wasn't. Uh, like was that very different? Like moving from a system where you had eight years under coaches to sort of being a lot more self-directed in your, in your learning. Oh yeah, I I guess that's different in that um there isn't, um a clear coach figure whose instructions or whose advice you should listen to. It's a lot more decentralized. Um, it's a lot more about t- taking advice from seniors and um just mm. giving each other mutual feedback. Um, now you are a coach yourself, right? Um, yeah. What? How do you describe your coaching philosophy? Uh, and and it, for be, being on the other side, like uh, having uh, been coached by somebody and now coaching a, a school, like are there new insights that you've gained about coaching that you perhaps didn't have? Mm, yeah, I think um, in terms of my coaching philosophy, I think um, I try to help my students enjoy debating. Um, I want them to develop as debaters and improve and so on, but I also don't want them to become so consumed with the 
competitiveness of it that they can't enjoy it anymore, which I think is quite unfortunate. So um, I think it's important to me that my students continue to enjoy debating. I think to see the fun um, in each tournament and to see the fun in each new skill that they learn um, so that even when they lose or even when they don't do well, they can still say that there was something that they enjoyed about that tournament. Right. I think that's very important for me. Um, in terms of realizations that I've I've gotten about coaching, I guess um, the main thing would be I suppose um, the difficulty of it, how difficult it can be. I think to um, to nurture the development of students to create um coordinated training plans um to help everyone to, to move forward um as a team um how difficult it can be especially when tournaments are coming around um i, I guess also um the um difficulty and i guess the skills that are required to to nurture students and to right. To guide them effectively, yeah. I think that's something that I have come to appreciate a lot more. Alright, let's move on to the third group then. Uh, seniors, right? Yeah, okay. So, um, I've also been fortunate to benefit from a lot of very supportive seniors who have given me a, a lot of great advice. Um, an example of this would be, um, the seniors who, when I was in year one of NUS told me that I should stop doing third and start doing first instead. That's like, that's like, that's on a level like equivalent to the primary school teacher putting your name on the board already. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, those were Shami and Netwang. They both told me in one training session that I should do first. Um, also, other seniors like Adil, for example, who has always been very supportive of my development um, as a debater throughout my time in NUS, um, even initially when I, I wasn't that used to uni debating yet, things like that. So I think he's always been very supportive. And yeah, lots of other seniors as well. All right, shall we go to the last group then? Friends. Yeah, sure, friends. Okay, so this is also a very broad category. And um, mm. I want to emphasize again, this is also non-exhaustive. Like um, everything I say in this segment is non-exhaustive. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, because there are... are Obviously, a lot of people. Okay, but I think um there have been a lot of friends I have made during my time in debating um who have been very supportive um and who I think um have just made my life a lot better. So one thing I would remember is um in twenty sixteen, for example, uh, when we were doing UADC, uh Farhan and Mengling were super friendly, and that's something that I I really appreciated. Um, when I was just getting into uni debating. Yeah, and, and, um, also the members of the Yan Club. Uh, that's people like, um, Yan, Kevin, um, Weiken, Beiji, and Yao Kun. I really appreciate how, uh, we spend time together and they've been there for me. So, we're approaching the end of the podcast. A couple of quick fire questions then. Uh, the first is favorite, least favorite motion? Uh, okay, so my least favorite motions would be finance or econs motions. I think those are important topics, but I personally just have a lot of trouble with the technicalities of them. Right, right. Uh, and my, <laughs> I, guess, yeah, I guess and my you, favorite, I guess yeah. like game, GameStop, the the saga with GameStop must yeah. be your worst nightmare, right? Because it will probably <laughs> appear at some point. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. I I 
I imagine there will be quite a few motions about that in the oh next dear. few tournaments. Oh, no. <laughs> I need to start researching. <laughs> oh no, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, 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 I think um, I like um, feminism motions as well as motions that are about some kind of social narrative. Um, I think I like the opportunity to set up the world and clarify mm. what these narratives look like and how they they affect our lives in general. I think that's something that I really enjoy doing. That's that's very interesting. I never really like figured that that um that narrative motions were the motions where you could world build the most. Mm, yeah. Find it really cool. That should probably help me in future rounds as well. <laughs> <laughs> so so you know, um this is a question that I, I I don't usually ask my guests, but because you've been around for so long, fourteen years, um <gasps> what 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 does the future hold? Uh, you've graduated from NUS already. Do you yep. anticipate that you'll be debating for a long time to come? <laughs> so I imagine that as life moves on and I get busier, eventually I will probably have to reduce to some extent my involvement in debating. I guess there's no way around that. Um right. but I at this point I don't anticipate there being a point where I make a hard stop and just say, okay, this is it, I'm retiring now, I'm not debating anymore. Like I don't anticipate there being such a point at this point. Right. And I guess like whatever happens <laughs> in the future is not something you'll be thinking about lah. It's future areas problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you.